Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm good, thank you, Darren. I'm, I'm keeping it humming. How are, how, how, how are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I'm actually very excited about what we have today, because we've got a, a very special guest talking about one of my favourite movies of all time, the wonderful Mr. Scott Mendelson from Forbes. How are you, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your work. Oh, I'm a big fan of your work as well. Oh, like again, it's from... great to meet a fan, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all fans of Andrew's work here. Uh, <laughs> but no, um... as the children say, I stand. <laughs> hip and with the kids on this podcast but yes, yes um so for listeners who are not aware actually scott is is basically uh one of the great uh film box office uh journalists and critics out there um i am a huge fan of his work and he's i think to be fair one of myself and andrew joked one of the people that we would never in a million years have asked to come on this podcast because we wouldn't have thought you'd have the time um but quick one for you when you reached out and you said you were interested in coming on the podcast, we asked what movie you'd want to talk about. And you got back to us with a couple of suggestions, one of which I'm hoping we might cover later in the year for Independence Day. But the movie that we're talking about today is Quentin Tarantino's 1994 Palm Door winning, era-defining Pulp Fiction. So what was it about Pulp Fiction of the list of 200-odd movies that we had that made it the one that you wanted to talk about? Well, first of all, I hadn't seen it in 20 years, so it gave me an excuse to rewatch it. And to my absolute relief, it does hold up. Um, and yeah, it really is sort of a definitive picture in terms of the merging between mainstream and independent cinema in the early to mid 90s, where you had new and exciting filmmakers coming into the system with a certain indie sensibility, but still the, you know, frankly, the fundamental skills to make a big and splashy Hollywood picture with comparatively less compromise than to a certain extent we might see today in a more franchise friendly era. It was also, you know, one of the first, you know, true blue indie blockbusters, you know, um, you know, I, I think at the time it was referred to as sort of the Jurassic Park of art house cinema. <laughs> Um, it's not entirely wrong, but still, aside from its its art, you know, its its scrappy indie roots. I mean, it's a big ish picture with lots of people that were famous then, and certainly a few that are famous now. Um, so it wasn't you know it wasn't a mumblecore film at all. It was a big, exciting, splashy, uh, uh, occasionally I don't want to say controversial because it's it's that's a whole different conversation. But it was a good. It was an occasionally challenging narrative packed in a, a completely entertaining and engrossing, you know, crime melodrama. You know, at the time, it was almost, you know, it was a movie equivalent of a toy store um, where you just, you know, it had everything you'd want from this kind of picture. Um, and I think in a skewed way, as an example of how the industry has changed for better or worse, you know, the closest comparison I've seen to this picture of late is something is off the wall of his Birds of Prey, uh, Kathy Yen's uh, Harley Quinn and Friends superhero or supervillain romp from last year, which really felt like taking that kind of Tarantino and Guy Ritchie crime zigzag pinball narrative and placing it into A, a known comic book universe, and B, having it anchored by women. Um, and I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop. 
there were, I, I believe there were a lot of kind of pretenders at the time, like kind of um, mo- movies that were, were, were trying to do the same thing that Tarantino was doing in Pulp Fiction to kind of re- re- recreate the formula. I think Darren, maybe, did, did you mention the, the other week? Was it, um, it wasn't things to do in Denver when you're dead. Think, was, things to do in Denver yeah. when you're dead. It's always time. the one that comes yeah. up. <laughs> it's the runt of the litter. <laughs> Two days in the valley, yeah. things to do in Denver when you're dead. Uh, even Go, um, arguably. Scott I, Lyman's Go, perhaps. Although that's, yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give away too much of what I assume we're going to talk yeah. about in the big sphere of things. Right. But I think in the same way that the YA would be, the would-be hit YA fantasy franchises that followed Harry Potter that were successful... Yeah were ones that like Twilight that was very different from from Harry Potter, which was followed by the Hunger Games, which is very different from Twilight. I think to a certain extent, among the quote unquote copycats from or uh, Pulp Fiction, the ones like the usual suspects, which were very different from Pulp Fiction, were the ones that broke out in their own way. The same way that, you know, of the many serial killer films that followed Silence of the Lambs, Seven, which is a film that really shares very little with Silence of the Lambs, broke out on its own and became its own standard bearer, you know, inspirational, you know, zeitgeisty hit. I think in terms of the many, many, many copies of Pulp Fiction, and part of that is because it was a formula that was easier to produce on a smaller budget. You have known actors, you have, a, you know, all due respect, attractive young women of various degrees of fame. You have a zigzag narrative and you have violence, profanity, and drug use. Um, all of these elements can combine to make a movie that doesn't require a big, you know, a big scale Hollywood budget. Um, some of those films are better than others. And again, I think something like Go, which I'm quite a fan of, that came out seven years later, I'm sorry, five years later, was another one that was it was certainly in the mold of Pulp Fiction, but it did its own thing. Um, I think what separates Pulp Fiction from many of the quote-unquote copycats, the good and the bad, is that Pulp Fiction is a drama. It has funny moments. It certainly has characters who are themselves funny, but you know, it has something on its mind more than just you know the guns, the girls, and the zigzag narrative. Uh, it's a morality play. And I think something that the copycats and frankly, a lot of the critics, those that liked yeah. the, you know, Tarantino and didn't, didn't seem to realize is that he wasn't as juvenile as perhaps first you know, might assume. You know, even a film like Reservoir Dogs where most of the present tense violence is off screen, um, where you only see the aftermath of, of a heist that went terribly wrong. And most of the violence in that film is either criminal on criminal or in the rare occasions where it's it's on-screen violence against police officers or in one shattering circumstance against a missing bystander, it's not meant to be cathartic. It's not meant to be cheerful. Um, and I think, you know, uh, in the same way that a lot of the copycats the texas chainsaw massacre were, or halloween were much bloodier and more graphic and more violent than the one that started yeah. at all pulp fiction isn't a very violent film i i never felt that way even when i saw it when i was 14 um you know if you want to go into nitpicky details there are a handful of on-screen shootings 
six or seven deaths, depending um, on who's counting. I think Jason Bailey comes yes. up with six, and I think Roger Ebert comes up with seven. Um, and most of them are against, again, criminal versus yeah. criminal. It's not like there's characters that walk into a convenience store and rob the place and kill people. And I think even within the violence, there's a lot of it that isn't shown. Yeah. Yes. The way in which it's framed. No, it's, yeah. it's, and the way it kind of it will kind of cut away from yeah. us. Like, um, and I think it's sort of, and this wasn't the first film to deal with this, and it certainly wasn't the last, but something that I noticed as a kid, something that continues it, when you make a film that isn't a pure action picture or a pure horror film that contains almost any amount of violence, you're going to be tagged as being an ultra-violent picture. Taxi Driver, Payback, Pulp Fiction, uh, Joker is an obvious example. I mean, I, I, I like the film for what it is, but I, I was almost disappointed by how not what it appeared to be you or know, what it was uh, being sold as beforehand or what people were afraid yeah, it was going I mean, to be. It's, again, most of the violence is fair game yeah. in terms of movie morality. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and um, the one possible thing is kept off screen. Like the one thing in the movie kind of implied. is yes. implied at best. Um, but I feel like we're kind of wandering to, uh, into kind of what we're going to talk about later in terms of this. But uh, <laughs> Now, do you remember the first time you What's saw? Yeah, now? what is all this then? But do you remember the first time that you saw Pulp Fiction? Did you see it in its initial Yes. Release? I saw it with my father in theaters, um, a m maybe a month or so after it came out. It was an opening weekend. Um, what did I, I saw Wes Craven's New Nightmare on opening weekend instead. Uh, terrific picture, but it was bested at the box office by Pulp Fiction, which surprised everyone and topped the box office with a whopping $9.2 million, which by COVID standards is actually pretty good now. <laughs> I'm sure, you know, the little things would love to have had a $9 million opening weekend. There was actually some slight controversy that weekend because after the uh, uh, final figures came out, Warner Brothers was arguing that the specialist had actually topped the box office in its second weekend. And it was like pennies different. The specialist is the is the Sylvester Stallone one, is it, if I remember correctly? You say that as if you don't know. Sylvester Stallone, Sharon Stone, James Woods. Oh, and James Woods, the bomb, the other one about, sorry. Anyway, sorry. You yeah, not one of his one of their best no. movies, but whatever. This is this, this is a erotic thriller. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like I, in terms of genres, Andrew's favorite ninety subgenre. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, this is this you know a, a, a month, literally a month later, Stargate would blow everybody's minds by earning a huge sixteen million dollars in October, yeah. uh, which was a record at that time. But um, what about yourself, Andrew? Do you remember the first time you saw Pulp Fiction? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain I do. I, I was kind of like, um, I was aware of it long before I had kind of seen it. Like I knew, um, had, had seen enough of the box that it came in, you know, and the posters and everything. But of course, I, 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 I don't think my parents even watched it. I like, I don't know. It, it, I never get the sense that they were up late watching movies that I wasn't allowed to see. <laughs> like that used to happen when I was over in other people's house yeah. where, where, where I'd be like told to leave the room. But, um, as, as to when I saw it myself, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. I, I didn't like, yeah, I, I, I'm just realizing now that I, that I never have a good answer for this question. <laughs> <laughs> An interesting kind of story or anecdote. For the record, I am listening to you. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> my father's calling. I want to make oh. sure he knows that I'm okay. okay. No, not at all. If, it was, if it was anyone other than my parents, I would have ignored it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, sorry. If 
<laughs> my father who took me to see Pulp Fiction oh, the first time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good dad. Yeah. Like yes. if 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 anybody but my parents were calling, I would pick up. <laughs> <laughs> but if it were my parents. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Was it, was it um reminds of that story that Eber tells about like teaching Pulp Fiction and he remembers like going frame by frame through it and there being an 11 year old kid in the audience who was able to answer every question about the film and not only was the 11 year old kid there he was there with his father and it was like good job son we phrased you well um, <laughs> oh. yeah but I mean just violence is everywhere now it's even in, in your breakfast area <laughs> yeah, th- thank you Quentin <laughs> um, I, yeah I, I think I think I was very aware of the movie and of Quentin Tarantino from The Simpsons what because it was a whole lot of grown-ups writing the show for kids <laughs> so um yeah well I mean to be fair Quentin Tarantino was everywhere he was like one of the mm. like first big celebrity uh filmmakers of our generation anyway he was doing the chat show yes. circuit he was kind of doing interviews he was a personality of himself like I mean this is a film that starred like John Travolta and Bruce Willis but the guy in front of the camera not that John Travolta and Bruce Willis were necessarily in the best places career-wise at this point but the guy in front of the camera was Tarantino I mean that the story about how like he he talked about how like selling Pulp Fiction was easy because he'd already done the world tour for Reservoir Dogs like he'd been on like South Korean TV he'd been on Japanese game shows so he already knew these people when he was going around convincing them to go and see Pulp Fiction I think he describes he managed to get it screened in China in the 90s Um, and like seeing it he described as being like a rock concert um, the first screening of Pulp Fiction uh, in China in the mid 90s which is kind of amazing I just imagine with Quentin Tarantino, it probably doesn't take much convincing to get him to go on a Japanese kind of game show. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> it's like I feel like it would be almost like his idea is like while I'm there, can I appear? Can I go on one of those. Yeah. yeah. I just, I just do that. Um, in terms of my own experience of Pulp Fiction, I actually have a memory of seeing this because I, I do uh, myself and Andrew grew up together. Um, but I think at a certain point, um, Andrew went to a different secondary school. He went to a nicer secondary school than I did, um, and uh, I remember. <laughs> that Pulp Fiction aired on Sky One on television uh, one Tuesday night in the middle of the week. And I remember coming into school the next day and everybody was talking about it. Everybody, you know, our little 12 year old minds have been blown by it. And it's amazing because I still, weirdly enough, remember the pan and scan version that you'd see on the old 4 by 3 television set. And in fact, there's one sequence in Pulp Fiction where I'm, I'm astonished that it's shot in widescreen because I always remember it being a sequence where the camera moves to the left and then moves back to the right. And I'm like, isn't that how this movie's supposed to work? Because it's so ingrained, uh, that sort of experience of watching it. But yeah, this this blew my mind uh, when I first saw it. And I'm not sure I ever quite recovered. And I think it's a common thing, actually. I think a lot of people who went into film and who went into film criticism in particular cite seeing Pulp Fiction as a formative experience. Would that be the same for yourself, Scott? Would- uh, yes and no. Uh, I think part of it is... I mean, I was already a hardcore movie nerd, yada, yada, yada. It certainly was m- one of my first experiences of seeing, you know, again, a comparatively, you know, a more mainstream art house picture. Um, and I think to a certain extent, at least to a generation of fans or, or, or film scholars of younger age, when you were, you know, teaching kids about auteurism and, you know, directors having signatures, I think Tarantino was probably, you know, the most obvious, this is, a Tarantino film because X, Y, Z short of Tim Burton. Yeah. So if you have kids that were, you know, coming of age in Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, Batman Returns, you know, very obviously, okay, this is a <laughs> Tim Burton movie. It's got the, you know, trees that come to life, the Danny Elfman score. Nothing's at a right angle. Outsider that just wants to fit in, you know, in, 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 
it was very easy to explain you know film theory in relation to Tim Burton movies I think Tarantino's style and his you know morality plays and his his specific film choices you know the music the feet fetishes you know whatever and that I say that without judgment whatever um it was also again it was it made him very user-friendly to a generation of Berg, burgeoning, burgeoning film nerds that weren't necessarily racing out to watch Ingmar Bergman films or even, you know, some of the older Scorsese stuff. You know, maybe they had seen Goodfellas, but they weren't running around Reading, Bakhtar, Bertha. But so, yeah, I mean, it, it, I saw it three times in theaters, uh, once with my dad, once with my both my parents, and then once with a friend of mine that hadn't seen it. Uh, and I was a huge fan. Um, I... You know, for, for reasons that frankly still apply today. It's a wonderfully acted picture that plays around with narrative that has very specific characters. And by that, I mean, it's not just John Travolta as generic low-level hitman or, you know, Tim Roth and uh, um, Plummer. Amanda Plummer. Amanda Plummer, Plummer. Yep. Yes. As, you know, generic, you know. Robbers, high you know, with their head Restaurant yep. robbers. They're... All, not only is the dialogue very specific and conversation driven, which was a big deal back then, short of maybe something like City Slickers, which to me is still one of the best dialogue driven screenplays of all time. And that blew my mind when I was 11 because it was so specific to those characters in terms of the dialogue. It wasn't just, here's the plot and here's what we have to do. Well, let's talk about our relationship. Yeah. Um, but that the acting choices were so specific. I mean, even in the very first scene, you have you have Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer talking about eventually robbing the restaurant. And Plummer is just so weirdly sweet and innocent in a you know very obviously subversive way, because they're low-level criminals. Um, so even there, it's it's there's so much care taken into each line and each line delivery. And you know, obviously that's, you know, director's choice and editor's choice and all that jazz, but that extends to the rest of the film in that, you know, I, and again, going back to the copycats, Pulp Fiction was a huge deal, both because of what it was and how good it was at being what it was. Right. I, yeah, you could it, it, you'd kind of struggle to think of movies with better dialogue or, or greater kind of specificity specificity yeah. <laughs> I beg your yeah no it's it's yeah. but but i mean um, and it, it that's amazing because i think one of the things that that ebert argued and i think he argued with with paul schrader who actually wrote taxi driver to bring that into the conversation again he argued that like it was basically tarantino after this he adapted an elmore leonard uh book as jackie brown but he argued that like just in general it was tarantino who made adapting uh leonard possible because leonard's like the appeal of Leonard was never the prose, it was the dialogue. And after Pulp Fiction, you had the freedom in movies for characters to talk like that. I mean, Jackie Brown is perhaps one of the prime examples by, an, you know, another one of the kind of movie, like whatever we call the kind of 90s movie brats, um, the, you know, Steven Soderbergh and stuff like that, which is, again, remarkable. And it's interesting, Scott mentions the kind of the, the casting of it, because like this is arguably the first time that like Tarantino does what becomes a Tarantino shtick, which is the career resurrection 
of a bygone yes. artist. Um, and I mean, people point to John Travolta and we'll probably talk about him later on, but even Bruce Willis, because Bruce Willis at this point was coming off Hudson Hawk, Bonfire the Vanities, um, the, you know, Death Becomes Her even. He had a rival film opening, which again, I think was possibly an erotic thriller, Andrew, I'm not entirely sure, but the same weekend, didn't he? Oh, with Sarah Michelle Gellar, <laughs> where he's a, um, he's like a river policeman. Um, and Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, Sarah Jessica Parker. Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I, I took it striking I, distance. I meant, I meant Sarah Jessica Parker. I think you're thinking Color of Night, which I think was summer 94. Ah, yes, yes. I am thinking. And this, for Willis at least, this was part of his, an era where he really was at least trying to do somewhat better pictures. You know, this opened almost concurrently. I think what you're thinking is Nobody's Full, which was a Paul Newman picture that was, again, somewhat out of willis's uh Comfort you know, sandbox i think this was a period where he really was trying to be sort of a modern day bogart in which he was taking these niche chewy character roles in movies where he wasn't the biggest thing on earth and then you know proving his blocks off his cloud with periodic action pictures before we jump into the sports zone we're gonna ask three questions to get us started so quick one scott do you think that pulp fiction belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made yes no qualification, no hesitation, just yes. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I haven't seen every single fair, film ever fair. made. And I guess if I want to say a qualification is if we're talking about American cinema. Yeah, well, yeah you know, mainstream, somewhat decently budgeted American cinema. No, I got I I to love this. No, because normally we do have guests who'll be like, guests who'll be like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure. Yeah. I just like a good yes. I've, I find it funny, Darren, is it very briefly, I mean, whether it should be on the list, and it's like, yes, and it's like, and do you have anything more to say? Fair Not briefly. Fair, fair point, fair point. And Andrew, what about yourself, whether briefly or otherwise? <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no, no fair, I'm only teasing. Fair point. Uh, yes, yes, I do. It's um, it's fantastic. Um, I, I'm 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 looking forward um, to to kind of hear hear and Scott talk about kind of what it what it meant to him. But for me, it's 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 all about the um, the dialogue and the performances, and I I I think that goes a lot to to uh, Tarantino's credit because he does that um, with actors where you think. Oh, where is this person being? They're so brilliant. And, and where did they go? Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily like um, uh, them. Like, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm. I've seen Don Johnson in things since, <laughs> and he he was very good in Knives Out. But uh, but uh, like Tarantino has that kind of uh, skill to get the best out of people. Yeah, as Big Daddy. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. How about yourself, Darren? Yep, absolutely. Um, unqualified yes from me here. Um, obvious reasons. I mean, I think Peter Biskin described it as the Star Wars of American independent cinema in terms of just being a game-changing event. I think Gene Siskel basically said it stands out in terms of films like Psycho, Bonnie and Clyde, and A Clockwork Orange in terms of films that defined what cinema could be for a generation. I don't think there's any real debate about this. Yes. And then second question, Scott, would it be on your own personal 250, your own favorite films ever? And how high would it rank? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I haven't made a list of that nature in a very long time. But when back when I did make lists, that was on the top 10. Now, this was in high school, so I've seen many, many more films since then. Um, well, coming back to it, though. I've, you... I've tried to sort of expand my palette a little yeah. bit. That's hard when you have kids that don't care. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, and, you know, again, rewatching it yesterday, it was to my slight relief, because you never know, not only is it still very good, but it is still 
very good both because in terms of the the you know it's it's groundbreaking trend-setting ways and that it's still just a terrific motion picture yeah. and i think again you know not to be a broken record i think the difference is that it takes its story and its drama seriously and it's not just using its 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 vice you know its vices the drugs the the, the, the guns the, the, the yeah for you know juvenile kicks which I think sometimes Tarantino is accused of doing, um, even by me sometimes. I, mean, I, I I was not thrilled with the third act of The Hateful Eight because I felt it was just so remorselessly violent and cruel to innocent people in a way that sort of put me off the rest of the movie. Now I've seen it since then and I get what he was going for, but for me, it kind of spoiled the soup. Would this be your, your favorite Tarantino film? Um, I know it's probably his, it's been described as a masterpiece. It's undoubtedly his most influential. But... Yes, my, yes, it is my favorite. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, because I, 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 I like more of them than I don't. Um, and they tend to do, they tend to improve on repeat viewings. Even something like Hateful Eight, which I wasn't a fan of the first time I saw it. Inglorious Bastards improved remark, and I liked it the first time. I really liked it the second time, and it really does feel like the pinnacle of at least early Tarantino. I think now he's playing around in a you know historical revisionism sandbox that's very you know sort of a you know historical revisionism and b how we filter history through cinema, um, you know with Django and. Uh, English pastors and once upon a time. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, and maybe that's why, you know, not to keep talking about Eightful Eight, <laughs> but that's why it kind of threw me at the time because it's sort of, it's in the middle of there, but it almost feels like a much older Tarantino picture. Yeah. Um, and that, Andrew, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal 250? I think it might, but it, then, and then again, it might not. Like, I, I think if it was me personally, I, I might put other tarantino movies um ahead of it even even like appreciating how great this is i i think um for whatever reason for me it suffers in my mind for not having kind of a central character or a central kind of trio of characters and and that's probably its strength but what i what what i kind of want to do is pull all of the threads together and have it make sense as uh, a movie kind of... Um, Just a single linear a, narrative for one character to identify exactly, the protagonist yeah. of the movie, as it were, is it? Yeah, or, or to kind of... To, to even to even kind of identify the different viewpoints in the movie and, and, and come away with kind of like what... Um, therefore, what is the movie <laughs> saying? Like, but, but then again, maybe, maybe that makes it a better movie because I want... I, I, I bought the movie this time <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of rented it <laughs> um, when, it, when, I went to, when I went to stream it because I'd like to see it lots of times. And, and there, there, I think there is a lot in it that, that one could kind of pick away at. But yeah, um, it, it, perhaps um, it would. And um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it's my, my favorite um, Tarantino movie. Probably not at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. For myself, 
probably yes. Um, in that, again, this is the thing where I feel really embarrassed on the stereotypical film bro, where I'm like, yeah, probably most Tarantino movies are in my own personal 250. And I do see other movies and I do try to broaden my palette, but I tend to come back. You loved to, Hateful Eight. I do. I adored Hateful Eight uh, because I'm a cynical human being with a very dark core and no faith in humanity as a whole. Um, no, like I don't know. The, the Hateful Eight is a separate discussion, but I think at the time that it came out, it felt like it captured something unsettling about where we were and then the following year happened and i was like yes that captured something very unsettling and that we agree yes (laughs) that's why i rewatched it um it's a good thing everything is fine now again (laughs) yeah everything's back to normal i could i could watch zootopia without crying again (laughs) Um, but yeah i i don't know if it would be my favorite tarantino movie um i think it it kind of uh, not similar to andrew but more it's kind of a movie that is so large and i've seen so many times and as scott mentioned i've seen repeated so many times that it's hard for me to separate the movie itself from like the cultural experience of the movie and so i kind of almost like the intimacy of reservoir dogs in comparison um because reservoir dogs just feels like a smaller tighter little movie i don't think reservoir dogs is a better movie i don't think reservoir dogs is a more important movie uh, but i think i might prefer it to pulp fiction just personally for those reasons i mentioned and then final question to take us into the spoiler zone if listeners have not watched pulp fiction would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device, Scott? Uh, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> I mean, if only for, you know, film educational purposes. You know, I don't know. I don't know how it would play to somebody seeing it now, 26 years later, after, you know, copycats and, you know, Tarantino as a almost larger than life figure, even more now than he was, you know, back in 1994. Um, but I think... A, it's useful in terms of the the history of film, and B, you know, as a standalone, only responsible for itself motion picture, it's still very good. Um, it's exceptionally good. Um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you want to boil down, you know, it's it's morality. It has it's basically a, a movie of three short stories about people who you know eat amoral or immoral men who when the chips are down decide to do the right thing whether it benefits them or not um and actually it's kind of, it's kind of interesting like you mentioned it being a fun movie because i think that's what jason bailey kind of said about it as a rev- like it's remarkable as a piece of important film history that we kind of talked about but it is also fun and i think that like one of yes. the most remarkable things about it is that it is groundbreaking earth-shattering important and era-defining and it's also just a delight from beginning to end um but andrew would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and watch the movie yeah absolutely i mean for those reasons as well because often kind of you know era-defining movies sometimes come too early where they're just like oh taste just hadn't caught up with it but yeah (laughs) this 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 movie is um it's it's just a lot of a lot of fun and I'd, i'd i'd recommend anyone to to watch it i mean maybe 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 not people <laughs> of a certain age but then again we probably watched it when age. we were a little too a little too young yeah. to 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 see it i don't know is it better than <laughs> youtube influencers or creators <laughs> but, um, in terms of things you could well, check it out to. yeah 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 um and i yeah. i would i would wholeheartedly recommend that as well with that in mind then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone I'm very embarrassed when we have proper guests on and I have to do this. 
Spoiler zone! Uh, so, Scott, what is Pulp Fiction about for you? Uh, whoops, I already did this one. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> when you said final question, I wasn't oh, sure. No, 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 no. Sorry. Uh, but no, uh, for me, I mean, aside from its its entertainment value and its its sheer amount of movie that this film contains in terms of the acting, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the set pieces, uh, it is a morality play. Um, I don't know how spirit, you know, I would say it's spiritual. I know there's a certain tendency to, you know, any movie that invokes religion to be something of a spiritual picture. But I think to a certain extent, it may, you know, the same way of something like Magnolia, where it's a film kind of sort of dealing with faith, but without being a faith-based picture, you know, it's not left behind. That being said, as an agnostic Jew, um, again, the film for me is you have all, you know, three major stories, you know, the dinner date between Mia and and Vincent, you have the core, you know, basically the main story, which is, uh, you know, Bruce Willis and a star-making performance by Ving Rams. Um, as, you know, again, two hated enemies that want you kill each other, understandably. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, when the chips are down, you know, Bruce Willis's character does go back into the dungeon of doom and save his hated enemy because it's the right thing to do. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's the third story, which is almost like dessert, you know, in terms of it's just sheer goofiness. Um, it takes a while for it to get to anything other than just pure comedy, but yeah, it's about, you know, a character who has decided after he would argue witnessing a miracle that he can't be a villain anymore. You know, he realizes that not only is he a villain in his own story, he needs to make a choice to go on a different path. And I think there's value in the idea that, you know, the movie ends right then. So we don't know what actually happens to him. We don't know if he is successful. The point is that he made the choice, not that he got a happy ending. Actually, I, I would argue like the interesting thing about the structure is we kind of already know that he is because we know that like Butch goes to the apartment later on and we know that he yes. finds Vincent sitting on the toilet and like we'll come back to the recurring toilet imagery later on. But we know that like Butch finds the gun and just shoots Vincent dead in the toilet. And the implication is that if Jules hadn't quit, if Jules handed handed in his notice, he probably would have been killed by Butch in that apartment. Um, yes. So we kind of I think we do get maybe an answer there that it's like he did short term. Yes. Absolutely. We know that he did leave. He had the conversation with Marcellus. Uh, yeah, and he did depart. Yeah, that's what, two days later. Yeah. I do. What, what struck me again is that, you know, again, for all the talk of how violent the movie is, the first on screen graphic violence is the shocking murder of the film's main protagonist. Well, yeah. at least it's top billed star. Um, and again, it's it's kind of again the morality. But I find, and again, this is something I find interesting that when we talk about these movies, and it's something that I think you get with older critics when they responded to it when it came out, because everything is generational. I mean, you know, back in the nineties, we were having the same argument: cinema is dead that we're having now. Cinema is always yeah. dead and always dying. I think it's a recurring motif on this podcast. We're like, does this movie represent the death of cinema? But one of the big things in the early nineties was you saw the rise of young auteurs like Tarantino and like the Coen brothers, and one of the big recurring criticisms of them by older critics 
critics was about the violence. Um, and again, you point out the irony that like there's less violence in this than there is in say the Texas, not the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but say Friday the 13th or whatever. Um, but yeah. like the, this big outrage over and then outrage over the perceived nihilism of it or the perceived emptiness of it. And the idea that these are morality plays, these are sorry, sh- films that take place in a world without rules. They focus on criminals who kill with impunity. Where are the cops? And all this sort of like hand wringing that goes on. And what, Where are their parents? Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I find it interesting that like I've, as somebody who grew up with these, and maybe it's because my mind was warped seeing it at far too young an age, but I've always seen Tarantino as a profoundly moral filmmaker, as a filmmaker who believes that there is a moral structure to the world, even if it's hard to discern. And it's exactly what you said there. There is a moral structure here. There is a sense of reward. Like Butch's big arc is that like he's traumatized by remembering his father's service in the war and his grandfather's service in the war. And he's come of age in the 90s, which is this era of prosperity in the States where, you know, you have interventions in Haiti, you have interventions over in Eastern Europe. But by and large, the US Army, there's no big war happening. It's kind of that period between the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, where it seems like the world is peaceful and calm. And Butch has never fought in a war like his grandfather or like his father. He's never been put in... He would have been the right age for Grenada, right? <laughs> the invasion like, of Grenada. Uh, Bruce Willis? Yeah, p- no? possibly. Um, uh, but there's a reason why I think Grenada... That was a handy that one. Was a, yeah, that, um, in terms of that. But he, like, he wakes up, he has, like, when his girlfriend's watching that war film, he wakes up kind of traumatized by it. And I, I like the idea that, like, Tarantino's kind of capturing that sense of 90s on way, that sense of, well, this is a generation at the end of history. Everything is perfect. Everybody's prosperous. Unemployment is low. There's no real challenge facing us. That kind of like Fight Club-esque, you know, our Great Depression is our lives kind of moment. And I, I think that what Pulp Fiction does is it says that well, look, the world might be chaotic and arbitrary and random. And like throughout the film, you have this, you have this like ambiguity over whether the bullets that didn't hit Jules and Vincent, was that God or was that just luck, for example? Um, But you have like all these coincidences that have to happen in order for the plot to go into place, like wandering into, into the shop that's operated by a hillbilly rapist um, in order to get that plot moving and things like that. The confusion that happens over the cocaine and the heroin, but like... Tarantino's point is that even though all of this is arbitrary and random, and the film is actually structured so that it's arbitrary and random, because everything happens out of order, and you don't really understand why things happen in the film until you see the entire film. Like, there's a moment in the first story about the date with Mia Wallace, where they walk into the bar dressed for a volleyball game. And you don't understand why that is until you get to the <laughs> you end. You don't want to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you, don't, you don't understand why they're dressed like that until you get to the end and you watch that story about, like, Marvin's brain. And it's like, oh, that's what happened. That's why it makes sense. But I think that, like, Tarantino with Pulp Fiction seems to be saying, we make sense of, as human beings, we have a moral obligation to make sense of the world. So it doesn't matter whether God came down and stopped the bullets. It matters that Jules understood that incident as God coming down and stopping the bullets and made a moral choice based on it, which I find, I find interesting. Uh, like as a, as a kind of, as a filmmaker who's often labeled as nihilistic, I think perhaps. Is that fair? Would that be- yeah. I mean, I mean, he, Oh yeah, absolutely. He definitely believes in revenge. <laughs> um, like, like his, 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 his sense of justice isn't restorative or kind of, um, or re- rehabilitative. Um, Bruce Willis doesn't go down to the basement and have us all sit down and hold a talking cushion. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, you're upset because you wanted to rape that man <laughs> and, and you're upset because you're being raped. Let's talk about, you know, <laughs> the things that we have in common. Um, um no, yeah. to a certain extent, I would say that 
that's what makes Bruce Willis's arc work is that the easy, vengeful thing to do would just be to walk out of the store and leave Marcellus to his fate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, yes, you get the, the vicarious you know, moment where his nuts get blown off. Um, one of the few moments that's like, oh, yes, this is violence. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is satisfying. I mean, like, you can't really deny it, I guess, you know? By the way, fun fact here, very obscure fun fact here, but, like, the Polish dub of that sequence where he shoots the guy's testicles off, um, because he says the sequence, I'm going to have people come down with a blowtorch and get medieval on his on his ass. Apparently, it doesn't translate into Polish. So the translator who worked on the movie offered a reinterpretation of it will turn somebody's ass to the time of the decline in the Middle Ages, literally the autumn of the Middle Ages, which is apparently a reference to the, the philosophical text, Johann Huizinga's The Autumn of the Middle Ages, which I kind of love. Well, you became Uncle Falcon. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much, though, that doesn't really even translate to English speakers <laughs> from another kind of era yeah. or place. Like, they, 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 they're so kind of articulate in 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 this movie there there's kind of a moment where he says what is it um according to is this a miracle according to Hoyle yeah like and and uh, like some people have heard that expression some people haven't but i can't imagine that it's going to translate into any <laughs> other language where it's like this 18th or 19th century sort of cards player players rule book for um, anyway, um, yeah, it's 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 very. I, I I can't imagine the difficulties translating this. Well, I mean, because it's also metatextual. Like again, it's it's arguably that like it's arguable that I think was it somebody described. I'm trying to remember. Maybe it was Ebert, but it was somebody described Tarantino as the first filmmaker fluent in the language of film. In that virtually everything in this movie exists in the context of some other movie or TV show. I mean, even the centerpiece of that sequence with the perhaps the trademark scene, the adrenaline shot to Uma Thurman's heart, that was lifted directly from Scorsese's documentary An American Boy, where Stephen Price tells that story. And you can tell that Tarantino was sitting there with a note and paper. Like he talks about the Bruce Willis plot as like, you know, it's it's starting with Body and Soul, which is an old 50s boxing movie, um, a 1947 boxing movie. And it ends up in Deliverance. And it's like everything in the movie exists in relation to to some other thing. Like the, the sequence where they go dancing and like the, the way in which Mia relates to Vincent is, you know, are you an Elvis person or a Beatles person? Can you tell me which Marlon Monroe and James Vanfield, what the difference is between the two of them? I find that kind of fascinating, and it, it's fascinating because it's so accessible. But what what about the, what about yourself, Scott? In terms of like the film's metatextuality or kind of reference? Well, obviously, when the film came out, the idea of a dance sequence starring John Travolta was very, you know, it was one of the few references that you know general generic general moviegoers were expected to pick up on. I do think Tarantino has is has become a master of what I like to call the ripoff don't remake school of thought. And what I like about his references is that you're not expected to get them. It doesn't matter if you get them. There's a certain school of filmmaking. I don't want to sound like a grouchy old man, but you know, today's filmmakers, you know, again, it's it's when you watch a lot of, you know, for example, maybe certain Star Wars films that come to mind <laughs> that seem to go out of their way to remind you of other Star Wars films. You know, as opposed to, for example, the earlier Star Wars films, or even something like Solo, yeah. which was, you know, it's not my favorite Star Wars picture, but I like that it's 
it's riffing on the stuff that inspired Star Wars yeah. instead of riffing on Star Wars. And I think there's a huge difference between homages and callbacks and references that don't require you to get the callback to enjoy the drama yeah. or enjoy the comedy. Um, I mean, you can, you know, one of the, you know, Airplane is one of the, if not the funniest film ever made. And that's the case whether or not you've heard of Zero Hour or whether you've heard of the more famous disaster films that inspired it, you know, Airport, Poseidon Adventure, yeah. yada, yada, yada. Um, you know, it's not, it doesn't depend on your film knowledge of the references for its impact. And yes, Tarantino is a borrower of film culture, but that is never intended to be the primary reaction to his pictures. And I think that's incredibly important. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's when you do that successfully, you make, you take old pop culture, you put it into your stuff and you make new pop culture. You know, the obvious example of, you know, Fast and the Furious being a very loose remake of Point Break. <laughs> the actual remake of Point Break did not spawn a franchise. Fast and Furious did spawn a franchise. And I mean, you're right about Star Wars. Obviously, Star Wars drawing from like Kurosawa and Buck Rogers and yeah. all this sort of stuff and kind of like synthesizing it into something. I guess there is something in that in, in Tarantino's films as well, because they are recognizable. Like you don't need to have watched the original Django to understand Django Unchained, but it's a nice little kind of reference. And it's arguably something in the way in which, you know, he takes these things. Uh, like what's the the interview there's a there was a famous interview with vulture i think around 2016 around the time of the hateful eight and he was talking about like how he doesn't think any of modern pop culture will be remembered like old pop culture and i remember reading somebody observe that yeah but the pop culture quentin tarantino remembers isn't the pop culture that anybody else remembers and that's why his films have endured in the way that they do because we yeah. we, we don't look at pulp fiction and immediately think of you know that sort of like 1947 boxing movie uh we have body and soul we think no 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 that that's that's unique of itself um and it's kind of amazing that it kind of ended up kind of doing that it, it kind of ended up becoming like a since it's a little miniature film school basically yeah i mean that it's it's very true um but how how he he is so kind of knowledgeable of all of these references and is able to put them in in a way that you don't know what's being referenced and it, it i think it goes for music as well yeah except with music now these are um huge songs but they <laughs> they like if if you were to look for them on spotify like the first five <laughs> um uh, you know hits for that artist would be different versions of the one from pulp, pulp um, fiction from pulp fiction like that you know it's 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 like he'll what, be a woman soon the, yeah yeah they, they, what's it called misery zoo Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you have the opening kind of theme, basically. Exactly. Where, um, and it's, and it comes from him being such a nerd of pop culture, both of movies and of television shows. There's a lot of kind of reference to television shows in this, and also to 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 music. I mean, Jules becomes Kane from Kung Fu, you know, and then Tarantino goes exactly. on and casts Kane from Kung Fu yeah. and Kill Bill, which I kind of love. And I, I, I love as well that kind of scene where 
he Jules and Vincent are talking and he's like, um, oh, she was in that TV show. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I don't own a TV. And it's like, yeah, but you're aware of the <laughs> concept of you know, invention and the concept of television <laughs> and, and that these uh, shows have pilots, etc. Actually, that was one of the things that kind of struck me watching Pulp Fiction, like how Pulp Fiction changed the world is that like nowadays in a movie, even a non-Tarantino movie, you would not need somebody to explain the concept of a pilot because it would be assumed that through pop culture we've absorbed what a pilot is it's kind of fascinating that you go back to like 1994 and tarantino's like no 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 no. i need to explain how television production works because the audience won't be familiar with it for the vincents of the world well and and two things stuck out at me especially in the the dinner date a five dollar shake is now par for the course um (laughs) par for the main course fast food place basically and b i and again my memory may be faulty but I don't recall hardcore pop culture nostalgia restaurants like Jackrabbit Slims being nearly as prevalent as they might be today. And I remember the idea of a restaurant like that being unique unto itself, which is one of the reasons <laughs> why it exists in the film, because it is unique. Yeah. And we're supposed to be in awe of the the dedicate, you know, the fetishization of the 1950s. Um but no, I, I think a place like that existing today would be maybe not all the time, but or everywhere, but commonplace enough. Well, I mean, there's that sequence where Vincent walks through. It's a long take, but it's meant yes. to be. It's meant to be disorienting. Like the thing is, yes. when you wander through, it's meant to be like what? Because he's high on heroin, obviously. But it's meant to be like what the yes. hell is this? What is going on? What is this strange place Vincent has wandered into? Uh, but nowadays, as you point out, that would be par for the course. Sorry, Andrew. No, it's just wondering what Eddie Rockets would be like on heroin. Because in, in, in Ireland, we have this kind of knockoff of Johnny Rockets in America. That's kind of light on 1950s kind of um, nostalgia, but very heavy on your $5 shake. Very, very like, heavy. I'd say they're probably six fifty. Well, what's the description um, of Eddie Rockets? It's fast food at real food prices. Um, which I think, <laughs> <laughs> but like... One of the big arguments about Tarantino is that, like, as a filmmaker, what he does is equivalent to sampling. He was arguably, like, again, the first director to kind of sample, to take elements from all these little movies that he loved, TV shows that he loved, and and kind of synthesize them into a narrative and create something new. It's kind of fascinating that, like, that happened. And again, it's it's kind of tying back to what Scott said there. You look at pop culture at the moment, and it's that, that distinction that Scott said between remaking and remixing. Like, do we think that the, maybe, like, the success of Pulp Fiction... Like, did that resonate with a culture that perhaps later on got stuck in this kind of cycle of nostalgia? Did it predict it? Did it encourage it? Is there a connection there? Is that is that too tenuous, do you think? I think, uh, first of all, I, I don't remotely think that Tarantino was the first filmmaker oh, yeah. to do that. I mean, you know, what is Star Wars except for Buck Rogers, Flash Gordon, yeah. and what, you know, Kurosawa with a 70s political bent? Um and again, that's a classic ripoff, don't remake. You know, how different would culture be for better or worse if George Lucas had gotten the rights to make Flash Gordon like he wanted? Um, or if Steven Spielberg had gotten hired to direct a James Bond film, he wouldn't have any uh, jokes. I do think the difference now is A, we're more aware of, you know, the references. We're more aware of... Because all of the media is accessible to us, is it through the internet the film, and DVDs? And- because the media, because frankly, a lot of the references are more blatant. Okay. They're meant to be picked up. Gotten. And the other thing I think is, you know, because entertainment has become so consolidated, that's one of the reasons that instead of, you know, ripping off RoboCop, 
you just buy the rights to RoboCop and remake RoboCop. And by default, if you're remaking RoboCop, you're going to make a film that's going to remind people of RoboCop. And by the way, thank you, Scott, for providing the obligatory RoboCop reference, the recurring joke on on the 200. I was thinking I was going to refer to the to the mess that you made on the windscreen <laughs> as their obligatory RoboCop reference, oh. for the, um, oh. like Mana from Heaven's. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, they've been trying to reboot, remake The Crow for a decade. Yeah, you know, in the proverbial olden days, they would have ripped off The Crow and had a trilogy by now. Um, and people wonder why IP is so dominant in Hollywood. It's because Venom made like a gajillion times more money than Upgrade did. Yeah, despite being basically oh. the same premise. Um, yeah. an, an upgrade, I would argue, and I don't think many people would disagree, being the much stronger movie, perhaps. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, I don't hate Venom, but you know, it is what it is. But yeah, I do think, I don't blame Tarantino for that, because I think one of the reasons that our, our pop culture is so in, you know, constricted by IP and franchises and nostalgia, part of that is because of the audiences. They now think of entertainment as 104% comfort food. And what's more comforting than something that you already saw and liked. Um, And the other thing is, again, I think, you know, and I'm not the first person to say this, but when you have entertainment companies that are consolidated and they're now giant corporations, you don't have to rip off that previous hit. You can just get the rights and reboot that franchise. And have have the Uh, audience kind of built in and and no risk, particularly in the era of like peak content as well. Because I mean, you know, (laughs) Vincent doesn't need a television now. He can just watch it on his phone on the toilet, um, which I kind of like as well. Um, (laughs) By the way, one of the interesting things I noticed on this watch, and again, maybe ties that theme of chaos, is how often terrible things happen when Vincent goes to the toilet, uh, which I kind of love as a recurring motif. It happens like, obviously, like going chronologically, um, the sequence at the robbery with with Honey Bunny um, and, uh, you know, sort of that sequence happens. He goes to the toilet, he comes back and he's in the middle of a heist. Then later on, um, there's this sequence where he goes to the toilet and he's talking to himself and Mia takes the heroin and then obviously he comes out of the toilet and gets shot on the john and I kind of love that like again it, it's kind of like a weird recurring motif but you kind of wonder is is it saying something is it he's, suggesting he's gone on to the big white toilet in the sky so <laughs> yeah, John Travolta being there um but no I kind, of, I kind of do find that kind of fascinating that kind of like how carefully and how meticulously the screenplay is structured um, where like little things pay off, like the bit where Jimmy has this big monologue about how great the coffee is. And then like Winston Wolf arrives and he takes a sip of the coffee and he just like nods like good coffee. And it's like, it's like <laughs> and just like it's such a remarkably well constructed film. There's no little detail that goes to waste here, I think. I think by default, that's one of the Tarantino's better performances. Uh, by Jimmy as Jimmy. Yes. No, he's very funny in that picture. Um. And, you know, as far as his, his racially insensitive language, people were aware and complaining about that in 1994. That's not a new thing. Um, you know, there's a case to be made that he perhaps fetishizes black pop culture, but he also has made, you know, I would argue he makes films that are angrier about racism and, and slavery than almost any white filmmaker working today, at least at that level. Yeah. yeah. And if we're being charitable to him as well, he actually did involve himself with the Black Lives Matter movement. Like, oh, I mean, absolutely. The point where like there was a boycott of the Hateful Eight, I think, around it. Yes, the, I mean, he, he, had, he put his blood in the game. Yeah. 
Um, to, I can't say I've done that. Yep. To, to, to give like to give Tarantino credit there, uh, where credits due. I mean, Tarantino doesn't necessarily always come across most flatteringly in interviews. Um, like again, we mentioned that vulture piece where it's like, frankly, I don't think I'm competing with anybody. Um, was was one of those quotes from from Tarantino. Um, but no, I I, I I think there is something there, and it notably again that role was supposed to be played by C. Buscemi, I believe, um, who has a small cameo as the Jack Rabbit Slim waiter, and he dropped out at the last minute, and it was shot by Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez directed that sequence actually which is, is quite oh. interesting um that's he's he's buddy holly isn't he yes <laughs> and not a good waiter apparently um, <laughs> not a good waiter yeah um, and robert rodriguez went and directed the one good sequence in four rooms yeah <laughs> <laughs> take that tarantino well i mean yeah again probably not a usually controversial um opinion um, <laughs> i remember that i remember four rooms being like you know, sought out because it's the hidden like, Tarantino, Tarantino film. makes yeah. so little yeah. movies, you know, it's <laughs> watching it. And I was like, was I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that. It's like the heroine that Eric Soltz sells. It's like the really good stuff. Um, so concentrated. Um, and shout out to Brona Gallagher as well. Actually, I keep forgetting that she's Absolutely, in this. Actually, our yeah. own Irish actor there. Um, and again, Tarantino writing from what he knows. The fact that Vincent apparently kept back from spending three years in Amsterdam is because Tarantino spent a year in Amsterdam writing the movie. He apparently like went over to Amsterdam for a year and just wrote there. And that's why there's that whole big opening monologue about how different Amsterdam is from the US. Again, that great example of write what you know, I suppose. Yeah. And it's also, you know, specificity. Yeah. It's a very specific detail that isn't, you know, it just informs that character. I mean, even the, like, the, the one-liner about Burger King, like, that, that's, that, for me, is probably, like, my favorite line in the film. It's the, because you have the big setup, you have the idea that these characters are talking, and, like, in any other movie, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I know that, because the writer knows that, because, like, why would you ask, except to, for me to provide you an answer? And, the, and it just goes, I don't know, I didn't go into Burger King. And it's just such a fantastic payoff. No, I was going to say as well, there's the kind of specificity, damn it, (laughs) (laughs) about um, LA as well, about the the, the kind of like big kahuna burger, which I guess could could be a number of places, but is probably in and out, (laughs) like the, um, and... Is that just because it's it's a good burger? Is that literally what you're basing this on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are lots of good burgers, in fairness. And Andrew did a food tour of Los Angeles, actually. We should... uh... I did, I did. It was, it was kind of like in, going, going to improv comedy shows um, and eating uh, fast food, basically. <laughs> and like, I, I'm sure a lot of people who are who are who are in LA will point out that the worst food <laughs> in LA is 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 the junk food. But I'd, I, um, that's how I went with it anyway. Um, um, sorry, but no, yeah, it felt very. Um, like obviously he's a director who loves LA, yeah. um, or sorry, maybe love is the wrong word, but but he knows LA. <laughs> it's inseparable you know? from. Yeah, I mean, I'd argue Pulp Fiction is one of the quintessential LA movies, kind of like Robert Altman's Shortcuts, for example. Um, and you know, I mean, for better or worse, perhaps like Paul Haggis's Crash, um, in that it, it's a story that I kind of associate with stories about LA, where it's just it's an urban sprawl it's it's disjointed lives because in in new york everybody's on top of one another everybody's highly concentrated obviously physically within the boroughs of the city but with los angeles you just have this sprawl and this grid and you obviously you have the financial district and places like that but it's so large that you can't get around except by car so everybody's disconnected from one another 
And like Pulp Fiction's one of the quintessential A movies. But Scott, what about yourself? Would you is that a fair thing to say? Would you consider them? I would agree with you. Other than you know, my you know, either that or Steve Martin's LA story. Yeah. Which is a childhood favorite of mine. It's my favorite Steve Martin movie. And it's the movie that gave me a massive crush on Sarah Jessica Parker. Rooting for striking I distance like the, here. Um. <laughs> I like I like the little touch as well of um uh, let's get into character, like like how it, it, the, there 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 are elements of this movie um, that kind of you know couldn't be made anywhere else. Or, or well, I, I, maybe that's unfair, but 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 it's definitely drawing upon the kind of LA performativity um, sort of stuff. Is it like basically exactly, we're we're yeah, all movie yeah. stars because we're in LA? Is it as in like everybody? Yeah, acting and, and, and... M- Mia having kind of you know came to LA to be an actress and and dresses uh, like Vincent, which I love. Um, like, she... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know Uma Thurman gives a at least a mainstream wise star making performance. Um, it's a again, it's a wonderfully specific, mischievous, um, you know interpretation of a character that could easily be a very stock character in these kind of crime films. And I would argue for better or worse, that character became a stock character in a number of films that followed. Um, And I do like how the film subtly plays on the whole wish fulfillment fantasy that might have existed in younger or older men watching the film where, yes, you know, Vincent goes out and has this relatively successful date with this ridiculously attractive young woman uh, who is, you know, very much in tune with him. But what happens next? <laughs> a, she ODs and she almost dies. And B, he gets shot and killed two days later. <laughs> and I kind, of, I kind of actually love that aspect of it. Like the idea that, like, despite the fact it's a Tarantino movie and despite the fact that Tarantino characters just talk for days, the two of them don't really connect until they dance together. Like, yes. like the whole point well, of the date is arguably that they don't really... Well, okay, is that... Sorry, maybe I'm being unfair. Well, no, I mean, yes and no. I think to a certain extent, they they understand each other. And she's certainly enticed when she asks... When he has the courage to ask him about what happened to... Uh, Rocky Horror Picture. Uh, wait, well, oh, yeah, yes. yes. Um, and I think that's at, a, it's at that point when she realizes, you know, that... that, that yeah, that they're again. It's not necessarily something romantic. There, obviously, they're both two good-looking people, but there is, you know, there is a yeah. you know friendly connection. I think personally, Vincent got off easy dying two <laughs> days later because, like, if anything had happened between himself and Mia, like it would be, you know, with a blowtorch <laughs> and a pipe, uh, yeah, getting kind of uh, the autumn know, of the uh, medieval years, early, early Middle Ages or whatever. <laughs> um, well, no, I, I, actually, that's one of the things that I really like about Pulp Fiction is how much of a screw up Vincent is. Um, particularly when you compare him, because obviously he shares a nickname with Vic Vega, and I think the part was originally offered to Michael Madison, and obviously Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs, the kind of impression that you have of the guy in the suit. And I love that Vincent is just continuously a screw-up. Like, again, the fact that... He's a jerk. And and, and steadfastly refuses to learn from any of his mistakes, and is so self-centered and so ignorant. Like, the fact that he leaves Mia with the heroine while he's talking to himself in, like, looking at his own reflection, talking about how he's gonna go out there and have a drink, and leaves her long enough to take it. And then, basically, his his resolution is, I gotta go. Like, when he comes out of the bathroom, he's like, after that pep talk, I've decided I gotta go. But he's just such an 
asshole and so incompetent. I mean, I think Tarantino's joke that it was Butch who keyed his car. Like when he talks about how his car was keyed, <laughs> that was Butch when he told him like punchy. Yeah. You heard me punchy. Um, and I, I kind of like I really like that about it. Like Vince is a great character, but I love that he's not he's not super cool. He's not super suave. He's not like one of those comic book kind of criminals that you kind of imagine populate stories like this. He's really bad at his job. He leaves his gun outside the bathroom. <laughs> I mean, I don't leave my phone outside the bathroom. What a lot of gun. <laughs> if I owned a if I owned a silenced machine pistol, I would take it with me to the loo. Yeah, I, I do li- I imagine though having a, a a silenced machine gun accident in the loo. <laughs> like fumbling around with it. Like oh. yeah, yeah, there's probably no happy ending, even if Vincent takes the silenced machine gun into the bathroom. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely someone of a buffoon. But because his actions don't tend to hurt anyone other than himself in the long run, you know, he's still someone endearing. Yeah. Um and and because the other characters gotta call him out, like his his, his attempt yeah. to stand up to the wolf, like which I absolutely yeah. love. Like the, the fact that like in the third act of the film, it's very clear that this is all Vincent's fault. But Vincent yeah. refuses to accept any moral or kind of like basically just social responsibility for it. It's like we just say please, you don't have to talk to us like that. Um, or the sequence where he's like complaining as he's you know cleaning the front seat while fucking uh, Jules is cleaning the brain. Which I kind of love. I kind of love that kind of sense of, and again, ties back to that Tarantino morality where Vincent is a bad person. And he's not a bad person necessarily because he's a hitman. He's a bad person just because he's an asshole, which I kind of love. No, I was saying, just don't point a loaded gun at a guy that you're not intending to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the fact that he's doing that while he's being condescending to Jules. It's like, so yes. what about you, Marvin? Do you think that God came down and boom? Um, it's- <laughs> uh, that was a rapturous moment of laughter the first time I saw that. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and even though I, I didn't see the film until maybe a month afterward, I surprisingly, I was kept in the dark. I, I did, avoided spoiling that moment for myself. Um, this was you know back before the internet, obviously, so... <laughs> it wasn't in, you know, maybe a half dozen reviews that I might have read. I didn't know about it. No, I, I don't know if I'm just shoehorning it in because we uh, somehow managed to talk about inappropriate smoking. But I feel like, <laughs> like I got this sense watching this movie, and I think I've got this sense before. It's like, is Wolf that great and cool? <laughs> <laughs> like, or is it just that he's wearing a tuxedo and like competent? And <laughs> they, they, like, like, because um, in in the house, like, it's clear that Jimmy doesn't smoke. His wife probably doesn't smoke either. She's a nurse. <laughs> but yeah, Wolf is smoking in the house and asking him, does he want to smoke? And he's like politely saying no. I feel like I feel like Wolf has made a a, a very unwolf faux pas. Um, but maybe, maybe, maybe that's just me try, struggling to. Well, Wolf is a guy who hangs around gambling dens at eight a.m. on a morning, presumably wearing a tuxedo, which I kind of, again, a small detail that I love. It's like we'll call the wolf over. Where is he? He's at a casino because that's that's what it is when you hear in the background. It's like all bets, please. Um, it's like yeah, sure, he's probably Who drunk. Yeah, yeah, that's what the. I felt like he was at a funeral or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, was, it, it, was, was it like a, a a bookies or something? I don't know. But you you um, hear like as the camera pans across, you can hear "Place your bets, please." Place your bets. So it seems to be some sort of. He's in a bedroom. He is in a bed. Yeah, yes. and I I do like that. You know, at the end of the day, nothing that he tells them to do is particularly. You know, is clean the car, move the corpse. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> use blankets to cover up all the blood. Yeah, um, I'm going to give Jimmy some money. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to handle Jimmy. I'm mostly going to drink Jimmy's coffee and be yeah. polite to him. Basically, is what we've had yeah. here. Like, let's find somewhere inconspicuous to wash all this blood out. Let's <laughs> yeah. go to your back garden. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's, and it's possible that his, his value comes from being, you know, keeping his cool during stressful situations. Um, but in terms of it being a master fixer, I mean, nothing, you know, it basically just says, clean the car. Follow common sense. In the trunk. <laughs> I mean... When I saw the movie when I was 14, yeah, that's pretty obvious advice. Um, whatever Vincent suggests, don't do that. Um, I would just like, love to see the version of this movie where he's like, oh, sh- <laughs> damn it, I thought that would work. Why is the blood soaking into everything? And it's like, calm down, Wolf. It's okay. We'll, we'll think of something. <laughs> but, but again, it kind of gets at the nice low-key nature of it. And by the way, small touch that I love, Wolf, like when he comes out and he suggests offering them a lift to the car or lift it back to their place. And then it becomes very clear that he has a two-seater car anyway. Um, There was never any sense that he was going to offer them a ride. But yeah, like, again, it's the low-key nature of it and the low-stakes nature of it that kind of happens over the course of the movie. Like, the fact that even it opens on a a robbery in, like, a little coffee place. And they're talking, the fact that, like, Honey Bunny and kind of um, the Tim Roth character are talking about... Um, you know, just knocking over stuff and, and kind of how tired they are of the day-to-day routine. Which again, I kind of wonder if that's Tarantino making an allusion to say Bonnie and Clyde, which was obviously the first of the new Hollywood films. Because here you have an outlaw couple who talk about robbing banks and they're like, no, 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 we don't want to do that anymore. That's not the way that things work. Let's talk this out. I kind of always wondered if that was Tarantino saying, like, in, in his Tarantino it's not really arrogance if you do manage to change the way American cinema works, but self-confidence saying, no, 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 no. This is this is what American cinema needs right now. We need to take Bonnie and Clyde and we need to like just make them, again, more specific in how they talk, more human in how they interact with one another. Um, and I kind of, I love that aspect of it. Um, and I kind of, I think, I like the smallness of Pulp Fiction for a movie that is geographically sprawling, that has a huge ensemble cast that spreads across Los Angeles. It's... Stakes are are surprisingly intimate. Um, like even even the big stuff, even say the the fight with Butch, the the bit that the only part of the plot that arguably generates international news coverage, um, that happens off screen. Like you don't see the fight; you just see the beginning of the fight and the aftermath. You see him before he goes out and after he comes in. Um, and I kind of love that the like the intimacy of Pulp Fiction comparatively. If it was in Florida, it would generate uh, international news coverage. <laughs> it's all. It, I I think it's something to isn't it, it, it? Like Scott probably knows this, but is is it, isn't it something about the way that they just report everything that happens in Florida? Like would would um, that they they have like public um, kind of court reports? There's always like a case of a Florida man who 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 um I don't know was caught with his friends torturing somebody in a basement with a blowtorch. Um yeah. That's the uh, stereotype sorry. of Florida man. It's just um But no I beg your But problem. no, I mean like I, again and it's interesting that the, the butch section of the film was apparently the bit that was because the film has a story credit for Roger Avery, who I believe worked at the video store with Tarantino. And apparently the whole section of the film with Butch, uh with Bruce Willis, was based on a, an entire script that Avery written, I think called Pandemonium Reigns. Um but it's kind of yeah, the, the kind of the butch stuff is is interesting, in large part because it's weird like even today watching the book like the mia wallace and kind of the the, kind of the the dinner scene is is 
fairly standard in terms of plot. You get more focus on character. You know, the final sequence with the cleanup after the kind of like shooting of Marvin goes wrong, what you call it, it's kind of a bit like Reservoir Dogs, where you have the aftermath of the jewelry heist that went horribly wrong. Um, but the sequence with Butch is very weird. Like it's it's and it's perhaps still the oddest section of the film, I think. Yeah, I mean it it's it's kind of is it is the is is the it's not that the rest of the movie is not weird. No, no, to be clear, you know, it's clear escalation in weirdness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean what 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 is it about it that makes it weird? It's it's the the bit about it that's weird to me is that there is there are these guys yeah. like for some reason they're 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 like fr- operating a pawn sh- a pawn shop and like you know apparently a local police officer operating a sex is that what an LA police officer <laughs> looks like or is that what uh, a police officer looks like kind of down in the bayou. <laughs> You know? That's a very fair point. Well, I mean, again, it, it's very Deliverance-esque. I mean, a lot of the critics pointed out at the time that it was very Deliverance-esque. I think Tarantino himself described it as very Deliverance-esque. But it's weird that it, it happens in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, I know I know it's the urban sprawl, but it's like, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, there's a sex dungeon there. It's very strange. Because, I, I mean, there there is an L.A. version of that. Probably like in, in um, what's it called? Um, is it Falling Down? <laughs> where where, oh, where with there, there's Douglas. like a, a yeah yeah with 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 a army surplus store yes. where 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 you have a more kind of LA specific version of that um uh kind of sex dungeon with shop. the gimp yes yeah 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 <laughs> exactly <laughs> where where yeah it, it's it's weird that that this is um LA it's like they've stepped through a portal yeah. or something yeah. and ended up. That's another example of how the violence in this picture, and even to a certain extent, falling down, which to be fair, I haven't seen in like 20 years, where the most of the harsh violence is directed at people that in movie logic deserve it, either deserve it or it's not. Again, you know, it's and again, that's sort of what struck me as different in The Hateful Eight is that a lot of its violence was directed at, you know, random bystanders. For me, the butch sequence is basically the main entree of the meal. It's the enter the yen of Pulp Fiction. Or excuse me, a fistful of yet, and it's also you know by default it's the most dramatic. It's a drama, you know. There, it's it's not a quirky, goofy, whatever crime caper. There are characters in it that are funny. There are characters in it that are a little quirky, even like you know. And this goes to the film in general, where it seems like you know each step of the way, you you know Butch meets an, another interesting eccentric character, um, the cab driver. His girlfriend, um, the show, the shop yeah. owner, and then Zed, um, and I mean yes. the Gimp as well. Um, um. And again, you know, in terms of the film's violence, that those two people are very deserving of what comes to them. And you know, watching the film now, it makes me sad for a time when something like that would be entirely uncontroversial. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when action movies made their villains neo Nazis to avoid political controversy. Or, or commie, commie Nazis, <laughs> the worst sort of enemy. But no, I, it, it it just it does that. Like, do you think that stands out from the other two sequences in terms of because the other two are relatively? You mentioned like the dinner with the with the boss with the boss's girlfriend, the kind of the the job gone wrong in the third act. Like, is is the second act an oddity? Does it does it stand out? I mean, it is the heart of the film, as you suggest. Like, I mean, 
it's no secret that at the at the end of that sequence, Bruce Willis rides off into the sunset, not on a motorbike, it's a chopper baby, but with a chopper named Grace. He rides off with Grace at the end of that, having like again gone through his Great Depression or his Great War, having like had his struggle to earn that watch that was kind of like passed down from generation to generation. But I kind of like coming back to it, I, I just I remember it it seeming so odd and still seeming so odd in a movie that is full of oddity and full of eccentricity and full of quirk. Um, I just remember finding it so striking and so stylized. Again, arguably the, the film noir influence, the fact that like when he's in the cab, the, the rear projection is in black and white. Um, the fact that like that shot of him at the, um, and again, this is something again, dates the movie because it's like, these don't even exist anymore at the payphone talking about, ah, well, he shouldn't have got into the ring with me about arguably the only innocent victim in the entire movie, I would contend, the guy that he kills in the ring, which perhaps explains why his suffering ends up being so terrible, perhaps. I mean... For me, the, mo- the most memorable part of that section of the movie and of the movie is the Christopher Walken scene. Oh, the watch. And I mean, I I, I guess it's because, maybe it's just because I'm such a big Christopher Walken fan, but I'd, I, I just, <laughs> I, I find myself um, kind of in the age of memes, <laughs> trying to meme it because I want it to be <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? It's just so, it's so good. And it, it's, Walken's performance in that sequence is so walken that it almost masks what a terrible story he's telling. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, even as a kid, I'm thinking, so the only reason his dad died, theoretically, the only reason his dad died is because he was trying to keep that dumb watch in his butt. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, he's like, that wasn't worth it. I'm sure, I'm sure Butch would rather have grown up with a father, not a watch. As opposed to dysentery. But yeah. I love this. I love that his mother turns off the television. She's like, "No, this this man's here to tell you this story about how your father stuck a watch up his ass and died of dysentery." Um. <laughs> Christopher Walken in that is who is a very good friend because it's like I'm going to take this watch that gave him dysentery and I'm going to put it in my own ass because that's what. Hopefully, he washed it first. Um. Yeah, yeah. Did it? Did he? He was keeping something for his son. Jimmy, also in his ass, um, and had to then it, it, the watch had to join that. I don't know. Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not funny, but it is, um, and it's definitely meant to be funny. Yeah, it's that absurdity. It is. It is both funny and tragic and weird and hard. It's again. It's. I think Scott mentioned this early on. It's the mess of genre that you have here. Where, like, it's not purely, I think he mentioned, like, it, it is a drama, it's a redemption story at its heart, but it's also not afraid to be, like, funny, because it's consistently laugh out loud funny. It's not afraid to be horrific, because, I mean, you know, again, we can talk about the, you know, the fact, the the portrayal of homosexual rape in the movie as this kind of nightmare and whether or not that's aged well, but, like, it is unsettling seeing the gimp come out, or kind of, like, the fact that the genre shifts so dramatically, where it's like, you think you're in a movie, like, where, about gangsters, and then all of a sudden you're in, as as Andrew pointed out, it's like you've wandered into the Bayou, stereotypically, in terms of, like, a 1970s exploitation film. And so it's... You're 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 the weak, and this is the tyranny of evil men. Yeah, but, like... Kind of- but like, yeah, it, it's the way in which it blends these things together. And that, that watch speech does that. That watch speech does that absolutely perfectly because it's, it is like so odd and so heightened and so surreal and so strange, but also as, as Scott pointed out, deeply sad. 
Because it's like, yep, yeah, this is the story of how your grandfather died and how your father died and how the only thing you have left of him is this watch. And, you know, you get a sense watching Butch that like, and I, I kind of, again, we talked about how unpleasant Vincent is. I like how unpleasant Butch is. Like Butch is really unlikable as a person. Like particularly like his interactions with his girlfriend uh, where he just mocks her consistently. Um, and he seems like he's a terrible, terrible guy. Um, but he kind of like you end up caring for him and rooting for him against all odds, which I find interesting. Well, I mean, I think we we respond to him because a he's put in a situation where he makes the choice to act yeah. heroically, and b you know as, as goofy as he is with his girlfriend, it's clear that she's not particularly yeah. offended by it, and she clearly adores him, and there's certainly a give and take there. Um, as far as the, the sex dungeon stuff, I mean. Again, it's one of those things where, like, even when I was 14, I was like, okay, clearly the problem here is that there's no consent involved. <laughs> Not like, uh-oh, homosexuality yeah. is scary. <laughs> Again, you know, I, it's... Yeah. I get that. And it's, it's same thing when, you, you know, when people talk about Silence of the Lambs now. It's like, I, I never took that movie as remotely transphobic. Because the film, you know, has a couple of lines where they say one has nothing to do with the other. Yeah, he's not. He's not like if he were if he were transgender, he'd be much healthier. Is, is I think the exact quote. Like, yeah, that's basically what yeah, she says, yeah. or that's what you know. And you know, Lecter sort of cuts her off when she's trying to make that case. And unfortunately, there is you know a deleted scene in Sons of the Lambs that sort of hammers that home a little bit more. But you know, deleted scenes don't count you when know, it's kind of discourse. And again, it's it's there's a difference between is this in a vacuum bad versus yeah. well i wish we had more options yeah, versus the context of it as well because again it, it is worth noting in terms of like, like we kind of alluded to the moral panic around the film and just very very briefly here um apparently um tarantino wrote it under contract for columbia tristar um and apparently what literally happened apparently he described it as like one of the most eye-opening experiences of his life because he went in to meet mike Midavoy, who was the head of tristar then and he basically Midavoy had literally gotten off a plane from a fundraiser with bill clinton and tipper gore talking about the absurdity of violence in hollywood movies and how they were corrupting impressionable young minds and all that sort of stuff and so Midavoy said yeah no no we, we can't do this uh but he got into discussion tarantino's actually it's an interesting discussion because tarantino's like look i already have the people that i want for in this movie in these roles and he talked about the role that was played by Tim Roth and he's like I want to offer it to Tim Roth and if Tim Roth says no then I'll offer it to uh, Johnny Depp and then if Johnny Depp says no I'll offer it to I don't know some other actor and apparently Midavoy said look would you put Johnny Depp first would you take Johnny Depp first and Tarantino was like do you think that if I cast Johnny Depp it will make one cent of difference to the box office and Midavoy is like no but it would make me feel better Apparently, and that was the moment at which, yeah, that was the moment at which Tarantino said, no, 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 we're going to find somewhere else for it. And I believe this was the first film produced by Miramax when it was bought by Disney. Um, and Would sorry. would it have made a difference to Tipper Gore? <laughs> yeah, that's a fair... She'd be like, I don't like these Tarantino movies, <laughs> but, but Johnny Depp. Well, and, I, and I think that goes to a huge generational problem with the industry in which people are anointed as bankable and anointed as names, and let's be honest, these are usually white men, despite having no box office draw whatsoever. You know, he's a wonderful actor, as far as I know, he's a nice guy, but you know, Ewan McGregor is constantly banding about as a name who has, you know, never really had a non-Star Wars hit up to a point. Uh, you know, Josh Brolin, you know, his star vehicles bomb again and again and again. 
Uh, and again, that's nothing personal. Not every great actor is a movie star. Um, but nonetheless, he is banded about as a name and someone who's bankable and someone who can get a green light. And that's, you know, when you get into the conversation about diversity and inclusivity, that's a huge problem because none of the very few, if any, of the workaday working actors who aren't white guys are given that level of presum you know, presumption of stardom. Um, and yeah, certainly in 1994, Johnny Depp would have had a 10 cents to the movie's box office. If anything, it might have hurt because he was considered box office poison back then. I mean, he went out of his way to make movies that would not be commercial. Dead Man, uh, you know, Don Juan DeMarco, uh, 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 What's Eating Gilbert Grape. You know, good movies, you know, to be fair, you know, to be clear. But other than his, even Ed Wood, that was Burton's first flop. Yeah. Um, and despite being um, regarded as a classic nowadays, and perhaps Burton's best yeah, film. Yeah, it's probably his night, best but... movie, but yeah, I mean, it was such a, that was such a miss, you know, followed by Mars Attacks that, you know, his career was basically on the line with Sleepy Hollow. And as a Tim Burton fan of that era, I was concerned when he cast Johnny Depp. Because, you know, at that time, Brad Pitt was one of the people that said, oh, I wish he had gotten Pitt. Because that would have been a safer bet. And you know what? I was wrong. Sleepy Hollow became a breakout hit. And that was sort of the start of Depp being Bank someone that yeah. people showed up to see. Yeah, the Charlie and Chocolate Factory uh, and things like that. And then argue beyond to yeah. Alice in Wonderland. Well, I think part of that is Pirates of the, Caribbean, the obviously. kids that grew, came up of age in the 21 Jump Street era were now old enough to drive cars and buy movie tickets. And take kids to see Johnny Depp movies. Um, yes. Which is how these things Oh, yeah, 10 years later, yeah, yeah, yeah. take their kids to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate yeah. Factory. Um, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, whichever one it was. But, um, and then very quickly, then I think we're kind of wrapping up, but just it, it won the Palm Door. Pulp Fiction won the Palm Door. Um, slightly controversially, in fact, because I think a lot of people were expecting uh, Three Colors Red to take the prize. In fact, actually, when Clint Eastwood, as chairman of the jury, and it's been suspected that Eastwood may have been the casting vote in this situation, but as he announced that it had won the Palm Door, um, there was an audible shout from the audience of, It's a scandal! Uh, when he handed the award to Tarantino, which I find interesting as well. Um, but basically, like, and, and again, it arrived, and unlike most Palm d'Or films, and this is what I find fascinating about Pulp Fiction, and you alluded to it earlier, it did not open, it did not have a rolling opening. It did not have a small independent cinema opening or a platform opening where it opened in select markets and then kind of expanded out with word of mouth. It opened in something like 1,100 cinemas simultaneously. That's a blockbuster opening. Um, and I love that like so much of the film's marketing like treated the Palm d'Or like not as this big RC award. Like the first trailer for it has the Palm d'Or winning Pulp Fiction interrupted by the sound of gunshots, the sound of Limaraz, and then there's the trailer kicking into high action. And I kind of like, I guess this is kind of like my gut kind of love of Pulp Fiction is that it manages to be both high and low culture and unapologetically so. Like it's it's a movie that yes. is is unapologetically artful. It is you know again the comparisons to Goddard's Breathless, you know, which is again a very lofty comparison to make, but it's also riffing on. I think Tarantino wanted to call it Black Mask after one of those dirty peeled magazines in which you'd find these sorts of stories, and I love that it doesn't compromise between those two extremes. Well, I I think what it is is it's that. Well, and like in my opinion, it's that Tarantino loves those lowbrow kind of sources of inspiration, but wants to make an intelligent, thoughtful movie using those same ingredients. That and that that's what makes it kind of um, that that's what bridges the gap 
because he he's not drawing on like you know in, um, literature. Yeah, necessarily. Uh, he's not like quote. He's not Kubrick necessary, yeah. necessarily drawing from a variety of sources. Or I think like Wongar Y citing you know the inference the influence of kind of like South American literary like Borges on his work or stuff like that. It's no no no. I really like this samurai movie. I mean again that that wonderful quote that you have uh from like Ezekiel five seventeen right, which is not Ezekiel 517 as anybody who has ever read a bible knows it's the opening text of The Bodyguard a Sonny Chiba film from the 70s like that's that's where Tarantino took that big speech from which is kind of amazing and now if you were to ask anybody what Ezekiel 517 was they'd probably give you some variation of the riff on the speech that Jules gives which again I find that kind of like that blending perfect and again it takes something that is low culture, like the, again, a Sonny Chiba film, not even like a Bruce Lee film, not even like, you know, not even, you know, something that a lot of people would have seen, and then wheeze it into this morality play. Because again, like that's that's the morality of Pulp Fiction in a nutshell. It's, we are the shepherd. We are all the shepherd in this world that makes absolutely no sense. We, as human beings, have an obligation to make sense of it, which is, you know, you would call it a pretentious moral. You'd call it like, you know, a pretentious philosophical point, heavy-handed, clumsy, awkward, but he weds it to this this story that is just so much fun from beginning to end. Um, all right, then I think that about wraps it up. Unless there's anything else we want to talk about, is there anything we haven't discussed already? Jumping out at, at Scott or at Andrew, actually, I think kind of. Uh, I mean, just to note that you know it made stars out of at least three members of its cast: Sam Jackson, uh, Ving Rhames, and Uma Thurman. Um, it absolutely kicked off the second wave of John Travolta's, you know, bankable stardom period from around 95 to 2006-ish. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and actually, we haven't talked oh. too much about, uh, about Tra- uh, Travolta here. Is Like, Travolta is great here, isn't he? Like, as, a, as an actor. Yes. Like, this is... as, as you said, he's, he's willing to play a not-too-bright, not-too-nice character without, you know, worrying it's going to, you know, bother anybody uh and then of course he follows up with get shorty which is where he's the coolest dude in the room <laughs> um actually i just think about because you were talking about this earlier about elmore leonard the story i've heard and this is you know 25 30 years ago was that he's gonna do get shorty but he tries to get out of it because they the, they apparently went back in the script and took out all the quirky elmore leonard dialogue and tarantino said no no you gotta do that and tell them to put it back in. <laughs> well, they went and put it back in, and we have the movie that, you know, probably the first successful album Leonard comedy, you know, that we had ever had. Because, um, you know, there, there have been versions of his, his, his harder, you know, 52 pickup, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But, but that wasn't dialogue. During a lot of that, again, a lot of the, the Elmore Leonard trademark dialogue was taken out yeah. of that. Yeah. The, the idea of like taking out quirky dialogue for <laughs> for Tarantino like is it is it on the hunt for, the hunt for red october or is crimson, it crimson tide, crimson crimson tide. tide. Yeah, yes i love that we have know. that conversation about silver surfer and you're like yeah of course i know who like, wrote this so. uh, yeah. <laughs> doesn't it make you nostalgic for a time when characters talking about comic book superheroes 
was nichey and nerdy and geeky. Petridge <laughs> <laughs> Farms remembers. Yeah. Uh, oh, very briefly, the briefcase as well. Because again, this is one of the things I really like about it is the fact that it, like the briefcase that serves as a MacGuffin for so much of the plot isn't relevant at all. And I love that they never reveal what's in it. And you've had these elaborate fan theories about what- Marcellus Wallace is so yeah. cool. Which is taken, <laughs> taken from the back of his neck because apparently yes. that's some sort of religious belief somewhere. Um, what The actual plaster on the back of his neck is because he cut his head shaving it which i love and tarantino um saw the plaster on the back of his head and just thought that instead of cutting back and forth between willis and rames he just focused on the plaster because it was more visually interesting um i do think that avery and tarantino both said that the there was a contest in some magazine to determine what what it was and it was a reference to uh kiss me deadly so they said there's a miniature nuke in there that's what it is it's a miniature nuclear weapon um, and that film itself was something of a deconstruction of a conventional film noir. Yeah, yeah. And what the the atomic noir wasn't the first atomic one of the big atomic noirs, if I remember correctly. It's been so. Yeah, he probably uh, had to take off that plaster or at least chafe it when putting on the ball gag as well. <laughs> Um, which is a concern. Did, did anyone I, I love feel that that's like Andrew's when... like big complaint about the sequence <laughs> in the basement. It's like, <laughs> that, yeah, it's that... like, oh no, 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 stop, stop! I've actually got a cut in the back of my head. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, sorry. We'll think of something else. No, uh, uh, they, did they, they, I, I, I don't know if if this is probably not something that, <laughs> that is particularly kind of germane to the movie. But when when Butch took off that ball gag, I was thinking. He has done that before. <laughs> it's like I know he's like you know an actor playing someone who's doing it, so he's probably done, several done lots takes. of <laughs> takes. Yeah, but the ease that it just goes boom. boom. <laughs> anyway, we we don't we don't kink shame, and, and neither does Tarantino. And no, no, no. And again, the again, not the kink shame. Do we want to talk about feet? Uh, I was about to say, not not to kink shame, but yes, yes, there absolutely is. And I, I only noticed it this time, and again, it's after going back after once a time in Hollywood, the fact that not only is she barefoot walking down there, but the fact you get the little kind of like glamour shot pose where she stands on a toe on her right foot, and so you get the kind of yes. dirty heel, and it's like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. And they take off their shoes to dance Yes, they do, well. yes. Yeah. Which is, it's nice. And again, I think it's, it's interesting, as Scott said, like the first thing you can point out, like Tarantino as like our first auteur it's like the first time you watch a movie and you go that's a tarantino movie because of how it looks or how it sounds or or how characters talk and it's the the um the samoan um gave gave her a foot massage supposedly (laughs) that was the whole kind of (laughs) like reason why he got thrown out um he's obviously just trolling us with once upon a time in hollywood (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i I saw a lot of commentaries like oh he's doing it like it's very self-aware this time he knows that you know and that's okay yeah it's kind of like shane black's christmas stuff it's like the audience has figured out let's let's play with them a little bit which i kind of of like um all right then in terms of of other stuff is there anything jumping out of people anything that we haven't discussed already anything that people think merits discussion All right. All right, Andrew. Oh, I, I could get us in trouble again oh. with links of organized crime to boxing. 
<laughs> um, I had to move to to the sticks in order to get away from Daniel Kinahan. So so I'm not going to do that again. Thank thank you. Uh, um, Scott is an American listener to the podcast, so he probably doesn't get the very specific reference we're making to Irish organized crime and Irish organized boxing. But yes, let's just. I've seen kill the Irishman. <laughs> I know my stuff. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Basic, <laughs> basically the same concept. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was actually. I mean, that was based on a story where I. Uh, I, don't, I didn't live in Cleveland. I lived pretty close to Cleveland. Um, if you, Kill the Irishman is a movie about a gang, a mob war in Cleveland in the 1970s. Starring Christopher Walken and Ray Stevenson and yes. somebody else who shouldn't have been there either. I'm trying to think. Is there somebody else? <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Walken's in a lot of those Fair movies. Fair point. Um, he should, really shouldn't be there. He's a, what is kangaroo he Jack. He's like, uh, yeah, a Kangaroo Jack and like Country Bears. He's like, I've got to work. Um, <laughs> No, sorry, my impression is gone. Country Bear is almost famous for kids. <laughs> what, is, what does he say? Um, I've, I've, I've got to keep moving. Like a shark. Like a shark. Um, <laughs> if, I don't, if I don't move, I'll die. Yeah. If he doesn't dance. But yes. All right, then. So that about wraps it up. So what we do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. So something you're enjoying at the moment, something that you think listeners might enjoy. So to give Scott a moment to think about his recommendation, it can be related to this movie, it can be unrelated to this movie. I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Okay. Yeah, I, I would recommend... Let me see. Sorry. <laughs> I had written down some, some things somewhere else. Um, in terms of the music... Um, I think it's Dave and the actually, actually, I have it here. I do beg your pardon. One second. No words. Um, right. Uh, yeah. D- um. Uh, Dick Dale is is one of, uh, and his uh, Deltones is one 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 of the artists featured on the on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. I found when trying to kind of find more music by these people, it was very difficult to do. <laughs> um, but he um, because not all the tracks got the Tarantino bounce. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it's difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff. But Dick Dale's um, solo stuff. There's some. There's there's some good stuff there because it, it, I've always loved the sort of precision of uh, surf rock. And I, I, I mean, you, you, you have some fantastic examples of it in the soundtrack for this. But yeah, just get lost, um, uh, listen to it because because it, it was it was a period and kind of a genre of music that doesn't actually get that much play. Like we've heard kind of like Surf's white up, yeah. from the surfaris and that sort of thing, but um, there's tons of it. Um, so yeah, to, um, to to check that out. That's that's the only thing I I, I really thought of when watching it. And again, another example of what makes it a Los Angeles movie, because you have, again, Tim Roth wearing the surfer's shirt and stuff like that. Exactly. The Pacific Ocean was not something that I saw. In spite of <laughs> never having really seen the Pacific Ocean before, I was like, oh, there, there's there's a... But there's no In-N-Out burger here. Um, there's a fat burger there. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go to the fat burger and then not go to the Pacific to Ocean. To see the sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see the ocean, yeah. Um, and Scott... What would you recommend for listeners? Um, since we're talk- what are you enjoying at the moment? Well, what am I enjoying at the moment? God, what am I actually watching? <laughs> what did we watch last night? Oh, I watched Maximum Overdrive for the first time last night. Oh, man. Uh, directed by Stephen King and co-directed by Cocaine. <laughs> um, 
I had actually never seen it. Just one of the ones that just slipped through the cracks. It's a perfect horror film to watch with your children because it's not scary at all. Um, yeah, my 13-year-old was just appalled, appalled at the uh, lack of logic, incompetence, what have you. But she still like, kind of enjoyed it. What would I recommend? Yeah. Well, in terms of since we've been talking about Pulp Fiction for the last hour and a half, among the better, quote-unquote, Pulp Fiction knockoffs, I would say is Doug Lyman's Go a film that came out in early 1999 and it takes place over, if I recall, one wild night in Los Angeles. Uh, it stars Sarah Pauly, who went on to become one of the more interesting director, actor turned directors. Um, Katie Holmes, Scott Wolf, a young-ish Timothy Oliphant. Um, and it's, a, it's another zigzag narrative involving you know, something of a cr criminal underbelly, but it's not all fiction. It's a, it goes to a, it plays its own game. It's an incredibly exciting picture. And it's, it's a good example of a film that followed in the footsteps of a genre defining hit, but managed to stand out as a fine piece of, you know, singular motion picture entertainment on its own. If you see one Pulp Fiction ripoff, as you go. See go. No. And, and I, I guess don't see Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Whatever. Well, if you're in the mood. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't it like the trailers for it had kind of Stephen King saying like that he was sick of, you know, directors. Ruining of, his work. Uh, perverting <laughs> yes. his vision and making amazing movies. And yes. that like in, in Retribution, he was going to do it right because cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, oh, I mean, hey, they can't um, all be the shining miniseries, right? Um. Yes, um, that's a copy. Yeah, that's for what it's, it's weird because when I was growing up, you know, before before the nineties, Stephen King adaptations were sort of considered the nadar of horror films. Right, um, and you know, in retrospect, that wasn't entirely fair because the first few of them were actually quite good. Yeah. You know, Carry the Shining, Carrie, like that. Shining, Dead Zone, maybe even you know the Salem's Lot miniseries. But it really wasn't until 1990 when you had A, you had Misery, B, you had some of the upper scale TV miniseries, It, Stay on Blind Layers, that his adaptations started to become a bit more prestigious. Um, so yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, so in terms of Pulp Fiction, uh, because I like stuff that is pulpy, I've been reading comic books. So I'll hardly recommend Grant Morrison, Liam Sharp's uh, Green Lantern run and the matching uh, Far Sector run. I find them kind of really fun kind of reinventions with the concept. And again, a bit of old fashioned pulpy nostalgia there. Again, I think it's like Morrison's run is very heavily influenced by 80s science fiction. Again, if you wanted to be cheeky, you could say that he's rooting through uh, Alan Moore's dustbin and looking for concepts. Um, but if you're not, it kind of draws rather heavily from from the science fiction magazines of the year like heavy metal and it has this kind of really good pulpy aspect to it that i genuinely uh, really love all right then so if listeners looking for a bit more scott in their lives where can we find you what do you have to forbes.com i am a i write for forbes i'm on their staff you can google some variation of scott mendelson forbes in the ticket booth <laughs> perfect and you're also on twitter as well actually which i, I quite enjoy oh, yeah, that's yeah, how i know uh, yeah at scott mendelson.com yeah um or at scott mendelson <laughs> nothing weird <laughs> Uh, Perfect. Um, all right, then. Definitely I'm on Facebook, but mostly that's just for family pictures. Uh, um, well, listeners now know if they want to. Um, but yes. So, <laughs> th thank you very much, Scott. Really, really enjoyed this. Uh, we'll be back. No, this was a pleasure. Uh, this was a, an absolute delight. Thank you so much, Scott. Yeah. You're very welcome. Enjoyed.
We'll be back next week where we're kicking off a two-part Valentine's Day special. Myself and Andrew have each picked a Valentine's-related movie to discuss. That is not what happened. So, <laughs> that is exactly what happened. So, kicking okay. us off... All um, right. that, I, that, is, that, that is a fact now. I, I, yeah, I chose the second movie. I, right. Okay. I suggested that like <laughs> next week we're going to kick off with uh, Wong Kar Wai's uh, In the Mood for Love. We'll have the fantastic Stacey Groudon, the wonderful Luke Dunn, joining us for that. And then the week after that, we're going to continue with an equally classy foreign language romantic masterpiece, which I haven't seen, but I am sure is just as tasteful and restrained. That is 365 days with the fantastic Grace Duffy joining us for that. Uh, we're really looking forward it's, to it. It's my encyclopedic knowledge of uh, erotic <laughs> thrillers. Yeah, gonna push us there. All right, take it easy, guys. We'll see you next yeah. week. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank so, you so much, much, Scott. Cheers. Bye.